good. Well, amen. What a Savior. Amen. Boy, that's good stuff. I don't know, but <clears throat> I think maybe it'd do us good to get a little excited in church every once in a while. Well, I'll tell you what, you know, we go to ball games or to the bowling alley or maybe even over to the, the parents' house or to the family's home and we play those games and stuff and get all fired up and scream and yell and jump up and down. And, and if you don't like that, then you need to, do you? Yeah. Okay, well, we'll work on that, okay? All right, well, we'll see what we can do about your sister. Sisters are like that, you know what I mean? Really, I'm telling you, it's rough. All right, so anyway, moving on. Uh, so <laughs> I think we ought to get excited anyway. But nonetheless, <clears throat> we're going to go ahead and look in the book of 1 Corinthians and take your Bible and look over there. <laughs> I love it. I love that. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. We're going to look at that and we're going to read just a couple of verses today and then we're going to move along. And I hope today will be an encouragement to you. I'm just going to be uh, quite frank with you and honest with you. <clears throat> I have preached this message before, okay? I, I don't normally do that. I don't do a lot of that, uh, at least not um, on Sunday mornings for sure. And, but, but this is a message that I believe is so appropriate for the first of the year. I think it's a message that's so important and powerful for us as believers as we move into uh, the, the future. And and it's been a, quite a while. I don't think most of you will probably remember it. Uh, but, but still, the point is, is that I think it's, it's worth bringing back. It's worth resurrecting a little bit. Okay? And so we're going to go ahead and I'm going to share it again because I think the principle is so powerful, so essential, so necessary in our lives that uh, I think it'll be beneficial and helpful to each and every one of us uh, just uh, reviewing it uh, over these last uh, days and so forth has kind of encouraged me, I'm sure, and I trust it will encourage you as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. <clears throat> Want to begin there? <clears throat> the Bible says, <clears throat> excuse me, it says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. <clears throat> of course, we're going to take a few moments today and we're going to look through the book of 1 Corinthians. I'm going to do a little study in 1 Corinthians. And to do so, before I do so, I want to give you a little background of Corinth itself. Because of its location on the, uh, on the four-mile-wide isthmus separating the Mediterranean Sea and the Aegean Sea, Corinth became a very important transit point for trade between Europe and Asia. Uh, by the 6th century B.C., there was already a paved road that connected the two seas, which enabled them to transport ships, uh, goods across that particular four-mile isthmus. Now, Corinth was very wealthy as a result of that. They were a very prominent city. And Corinth had a very long and glorious history, but in 146 B.C., before the Lord ever showed up, it was torched, it was laid to waste. Matter of fact, uh, the, the inhabitants were killed, sold as slaves, um, the worship of the temple of Aphrodite itself had ceased as well. However, in 44 BC, Julius Caesar colonized this 
Corinth or this desolated area. And he rebuilt Corinth as a Roman city. By 27 BC, Corinth became the capital of the Roman province of Achaia. So now here it is, a capital again, a very prominent city in Achaia and in the Roman Empire. By the time the Apostle Paul arrives in Corinth, it, is, it, it has the largest population in Greece. And there are Greeks, there are Jews, there are Romans inhabiting this city. I mean, it was a very versatile city, a very, uh, uh, just a number of different cultures being kind of compounded and packed together there. As a result of that, temple worship continued as well. We figured, you know, the temple of Aphrodite had been restored at that point. But not only had the temple of Aphrodite been restored, but there were a number of other kind of religions that had also began to take and formulate uh, foundations in that culture and even in that city. Now, Aphrodite, the, the temple of Aphrodite, was a very promiscuous uh, religion, if you will, or, you know, worshiping her was very promiscuous. And, and it was a very wicked society, a very wicked culture. Materialism, because of its great wealth, materialism was a, a, a very a big part of their culture. Idolatry, of course, took root in that same culture. As a result of that, debauchery and, and decadence and promiscuity seemed to be so prevalent. Corinth, again, as a result of that, was one of the most decadent, depraved, and devilish societies in history. We look at America, and sometimes if we're not careful, we judge America based on 50 years ago. And we say, boy, America is so wicked. America is wicked in so many ways. However, I'm telling you today, if you would go back and look at cultures in the past, you would find cultures that were at least as wicked and moral as we are, if not even more. And I believe today that if we could go back to Corinth, we would realize and recognize that what was being promoted, what was being propagated, what was being put in front of the people was extremely wicked, sinful, and probably even worse than what we understand today. This is the environment, and this is the culture from which these Corinthian believers were being saved and rescued out of. Again, a very wicked culture, sinful, immoral, and yet they are now the children of God. I want to take some time, and I want to look at Corinthians, and I want to... I basically want to uncover a very powerful truth. And I think you'll find it interesting as we go through and you'll truly be encouraged before we come to the end. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, we come to you. We thank you now for this time that we have together. And we pray, Lord, that you'd be blessed by the message, that, Lord, it would honor you. Because, Lord, truly, that's all that really matters today, that you be glorified and exalted. I pray that you would speak to me and through me that I would be simply your mouthpiece, be with the people of God. May you anoint every listening ear as well. May our hearts be truly encouraged today. May we be moved to be better for you. And Lord, if there be those that are without Christ in the midst, may they recognize their need for the Savior today to allow him to be preeminent in their life by receiving and accepting him first, trusting him and believing on him, then allowing him to have leadership in their heart and life. We love you. We need you. We just pray you do your work today. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> so we read our passage already, or at least our 
text. We kicked it off. But I want to look through the whole book of Corinthians and get a feel for the whole book and break it down into three simple thoughts. First of all, when you look at chapters 1 through 6, uh, we're going to find something interesting about the book of Corinthians. It addresses the Corinthians as far as where they are, where they are in, in their present faith. If you would take a few moments and turn with me, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verse 2. We're going to look at a few verses and we're going to see that first of all, presently, as, as the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, he's going to address them for what they are. He's going to focus on their present faith. And you're going to see here that in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that he addresses the fact that they are saints. You know, we have the kind of idea in our culture that you're only a saint if you've been sainted. But the truth is, is if you've received and accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are a saint. At least biblically, according to the Bible. 1 Corinthians 1, 2, Under the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. With all that in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. In verse 4 he goes on to say, I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ. Verse 5, that in everything ye are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge. These are saints. Right off the bat, we recognize the fact that they are saints. We recognize that the grace of God has been given to them. We realize that they are enriched by the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only that, but as we move along, look at verse 11, chapter 1, verse 11. We're going to see that not only are they saints, but unfortunately there's some contentions and there's carnality mixed in in this group. Notice what it says here in 1 Corinthians 1, 11. For it hath been declared unto me of you. The Apostle Paul, of course, is writing the church at Corinth. And he says, "It, it hath been declared unto me, Paul, of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Go figure, a church with contentions. I can't even imagine it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. Notice what it says here. And I, brethren, chapter 3, verse 1, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal. That word carnal means fleshly. Even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. For ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? Wow, there's an indictment, isn't there? Amazing. He's saying, listen, uh, where it is it on the street that there is among you envyings, Strife and division. He says that equals carnality, fleshly living. You're walking as men. You're walking as those that have yet to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not living and acting like citizens of heaven. He goes on to say, For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Well, I'll tell you what, these people were saints indeed. According to the first six chapters of the book of Corinthians, they were saints. They they had, unfortunately, contentions and carnality. But I want you to see their position in Christ and how secure they are in the Lord Jesus. Notice what it says in chapter 3, verse 9 now. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. 
For we are labors together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. In verse 16 of that same chapter, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? He goes on to say in chapter 3, verse 23, And ye are Christ, and Christ is God's. Wow. I mean, this is a powerful truth. Their position in Christ is secure. They, they, are, they are God's building. Their labors together with God. He says here that you are the temple of God. The Spirit of God dwelleth in you. The very moment you trusted Christ, the very moment you received Him into your life, He took up residency in you. Their position. They're Christ. And Christ is God's. Now, again, they're saints. But we also note in those first six chapters some contentions and carnality. We note their position in Jesus Christ, however. But unfortunately, it doesn't matter. Ultimately, if we're not careful, even as believers, sin can enter the camp. Look in chapter 5, verse 1. And chapter, we'll look at verse 5, verse 1 first, and then we're going to look chapter 6, verse 5. But notice in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. By the way, by the way, I think it's interesting to note this. There was no internet. It's amazing, isn't it? And yet even then, the Bible says it was reported commonly. I say that for this reason. How much more common is it when we sin that it's commonly reported then? Is it not a shame for a believer to be in sin? I contend that it's more common to be common today because of the internet and all the means we have to communicate. How much more than important is it that we guard against sin in our lives then? It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. 1 Corinthians 6, 5. He ultimately says to them, listen, there's sin in the camp, and he approaches it, and he deals with it, and he says, I speak to your shame, chapter 6, verse 5. Is it so that there's not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. And ultimately, we're going to see that whether it's sin or whether it's somebody that's been, been uh, slighted, He's saying, you know, is it there not anyone in the church wise enough to address and deal with the problem? Is there no one we can trust to mediate the situation? Do we really have to go to the law? Do we have to involve the world in our problems? We got issues in the church early on. Yes, they're saints. We see that, chapters 1 through 6. We see what they are. Their present faith. Saints. However, there's contentions and carnality We see their position in Christ. Unfortunately, there's sin in the camp. That's where they are. Right now, so to speak. That was their present faith as Paul the Apostle writes this letter. Now, I want you to see our text today. We are right there in chapter 6 already, but look at verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Isn't it amazing there? We see their present faith, what they are. But here in this passage, we note what they were. Their past failures. Paul shares a list of lifestyles and a list of sins. And he reminds them of what they were. And then he goes on to say, such were some of you. Saying, that's what you were. But before you can blink, he's off that subject and he's moving forward now. Notice, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, he goes on to say, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you? I mean, ye are some things. You got it going here. You're bought with a price. And now from chapters 7, right on through chapter 16, 10 chapters... He's going to talk to us and share with us what they're supposed to be. Or if you will, their promising future. Notice what it says. He says in chapter 7, 1, Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me. Now I'm going to deal with the things that you just, you, you wrote, wrote to me. You asked me some things. You pointed out some things. Uh, I'm now going to respond to that letter that you wrote to me. And he's going to share what they're supposed to be. And so Paul goes on to deal with a couple of things right off the bat and throughout the chapter even, throughout the rest of the book. But he deals right off the bat in chapter 7 with marriage. He approaches it, he deals with it right off the bat. Obviously they had written him asking certain questions. And so Paul says, fine, I'll address it, I'll deal with it, I'll I'll give a response, and here's my response concerning marriage. He deals with what's called Christian liberty. In 1 Corinthians 8, 12, he goes on to say, but when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Yes, there is liberty in Christ, but liberty is not to be a license to sin. Just because you're saved and secure doesn't mean that you can go out and do whatever you choose. You have a responsibility, an obligation to the one who saved your soul to live up to his expectation, not your own, nor anyone else's. And he's saying, listen, you can go ahead and you can exercise your liberty at the expense of a brother or sister especially those that are even weaker than you and do not understand the gospel as you do and their weak conscience will be wounded because of your inconsideration and selfishness. He deals with marriage and Christian liberty and he's trying to help them in their future and he's setting them on the course that they need to travel so that they can experience the wonderful successes that belong to the believer. He sees the care of God's man. He addresses that. In 1 Corinthians 9, 13 and 14. Do ye not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? And they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar? Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. Now there are certain groups in our country, even in the United States, that don't believe that ministers of the gospel should receive any kind of compensation financially. 
you know, that's their business. But biblically, it appears to me that if a man of God's going to give his life to the ministry and reaching the world with the gospel, there's nothing wrong with him being supported to do so. At least that's the impression I get here. And he's addressing that issue. He's dealing with it. Listen, there's nothing new under the sun. And the fact is, is that the Corinthians were dealing with things that we deal with. They were just like you and I. And Paul is addressing certain issues that have arisen, that have come up. He also goes on to talk to them about the believer's race. We have a race to run in 1 Corinthians 9.24. Look at what he has to say here. He says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. I believe it was this year that with the ladies' advance, you addressed and dealt with the tortoise and the hare. And we see the hare just taken off fast, a lot like myself. Very flight of foot. <laughs> Maybe not. But nonetheless, very fast. Takes off right from the get-go. The gun is fired and whoom, the hare takes off running. Boy, I mean to tell you, it looks like it's hands down going to be the winner. But the tortoise just keeps on going. You know, just right along. How was it today? I mean, he just keeps at it. Just keeps going. And when it's all said and done, what happens? He ends up winning. Why? Because he's not distracted. Why? Because he keeps focused on the path. He doesn't get off track. He stays at the race. He just works at it and works at it and works with it. He doesn't give up, doesn't quit, doesn't turn back. The Bible says you and I are in a race today. And he says, know ye not that they which run in a race run all. But one receiveth the prize, so run that ye may obtain. It it isn't a matter of, well, there's going to be 20 of you and I'm only going to give one the prize. There's going to be 2,000 and only one the prize. There's going to be 2 million or 20 million or 2 billion and one the prize. The point is, is the mentality of it, the idea of it all. He's trying to put into our minds that the Christian life is a race. And really, you have to run it as though only one's going to win. So that means you have to give it your very best. That's what he's saying. Boy, you got to run to win. He goes on to deal with the Christian standard. Boy, I'll tell you what, he has a different standard for believers than he does for unbelievers. In 1 Corinthians 10, 6 through 11, he goes on, Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Chapter 10, verse 6 through 11. Neither be idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Wait a second. Neither be ye idolaters as were some of them. (laughs) Okay, I thought such were some of you. Just moving on though, neither let us communicate fornication and and as as some of them committed and fell in one day three and 20,000. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Not all these things, now all these things happen unto them for ensamples and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. He said, you can look back at your forefathers. You can look back in the history of your nation. And and you can look back all the way back in the history of, 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 of faith. And you can see there were those that have abandoned the faith. There were those that walked in the wrong direction. There were those that did not do live right. But I'm telling you, don't do that. As believers, you have them as examples. Don't allow yourself to fall prey to those things. 
Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry, 1 Corinthians 10, 14. He's going to take the time from chapter 7 all the way through chapter 16, 10 chapters, to begin to share with them some things dealing with what they're supposed to be. So let's summarize what we've learned then. The first six chapters deal with their present faith or who they are. The first six chapters of the book of Corinthians deals with the believers, those believers specifically, their present faith and who they are. The last ten chapters deal with what they're supposed to be or their promising future. Here it is now. God spends just three verses concerning who they were or their past failures. Three verses in the entire book. Here's the principle then. God is not concerned with who you were, but with who you are and where you're going. Isn't that good? I mean, to think for a moment that God is not concerned with who I was. He's concerned with who I am today and where I'm going tomorrow. That's wonderful. That's such a, such a revelation. That's such a wonderful truth that I, have, I can glean from this passage. And we see a biblical reality that kind of rises to the top here. The fact is, is that your past failures are washed in the blood of the Lamb to be remembered no more. Look in Psalms chapter 103, verse 12. I mean, do you realize that? Can you wrap your mind around that? And listen, I, I get it. I know everyone's... Some people say, well, I know that. I've been forgiven. I've, I've been forgiven. But they chasten themselves every day. Every day they're reminded of it. And every day they allow it to affect how they live. Every day they allow it to, to hold them back to keep them from becoming everything God intends them to be. Notice again, your past failures are washed in the blood of the Lamb to be remembered no more, Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west. So far hath he removed our transgressions from us. The east and west, if you travel west, you'll never be going east. And if you go west, uh, east, you'll never be going west. They never meet. The twain shall never meet. My friend, I'm telling you, your sin is, is, is far removed from you as far as the east is from the west. Micah 7, 19 says, He will return again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou will cast all our sins into the depth of the sea. Man. I don't know about you, but that sea gets pretty deep. Every once in a while, they'll tell us that they found some, uh, some ship that had sunk or something like that. And what they find as often is that it's, it's in a place where maybe it fell onto a ledge or something like that. But boy, the depth of the sea goes pretty deep. And the fact is, is that a ship would be a lot easier to find than a little list of my sins. And the truth is, is that it's so buried, it's so deep, it's so gone that nobody will find it. By the way, it's extremely dark down there as well. So your past failures are washed in the blood of the Lamb to be remembered no more. That's a biblical reality. Another biblical reality is that salvation changes us from what we were to who we are. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. 
Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. <laughs> That's a blessing. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, just a few verses later, he says, For he hath made him to be sin for us that knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We're righteous now in Christ. That's an amazing truth. I mean, salvation changes us from what we were to who we are. Another biblical reality. Salvation begins a work to mold us into what God wants us to be. The Bible says in Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing, that God hath, that, that, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. God began a work in your life. God began a work in my life the very day I trusted and received him. I am a work in progress, and so are you today. And so the moment that you fail and falter, let me remind you, you're still in the works. Boy, these wonderful biblical realities ought to encourage us to think that the first six chapters, he talks to them about who they are, their present faith. And the last 10 chapters, he, he speaks to them and addresses this issue of what they should become, their promising future. But he only spends those simple three verses on who they were and their past failures. These biblical realities are so important in our life to understand. God is not concerned with, you, with who you were, but with who you are and where you're going. I, I have a few examples, maybe, from the scriptures, just for a few moments. But think about Gideon for just a moment. The Bible says in Judges chapter 6, verse 11 and 12, And there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak, which was in Ophrah, that pertained unto Joash, the Abiezrite, and his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. I don't know if you remember the, the account or not, but we know that the Midianites had occupied the land and they were really uh, creating some real havoc and real problems for the Israelites. They were under occupation. They were, they were being, being seriously um, uh, affected by the presence of an enemy. They were enslaved. They were in bondage to this enemy. And, uh, and this particular man, Gideon, is hiding himself as he threshes wheat for fear that the enemy will come and steal his wheat and take all of his labor. I'm going to tell you something today that as we look at this principle and we consider the fact that God's not concerned with who we were but with who you are and where you're going, he looked at Gideon and said, listen, I can see you, Gideon. I see you cowering down before the enemy. I see you being taken advantage of by the enemy. I recognize the fact that you are in bondage and you are enslaved to the enemy. But I'm telling you, that's not who you are today. That's who you were. You're going to do something great for me. And I don't know what sin has bound you. And I don't know what sin in your life in the past has re re uh, wreaked havoc in your life. And I don't know how it is that whether or not you are in bondage or enslaved at any point in your past. But I can tell you this, by authority of the word of God, that he's not as concerned about that past as he is your present and your future today. I think of a man by the name of Jephthah. In Judges chapter 11, verse 1, the Bible says, Now Jephthah the Gileadite 
was a mighty man of valor, and he was the son of a harlot, and Gilead begat Jephthah. Now, Gilead obviously had an immoral relationship with a woman that produced an offspring who was named Jephthah. The Bible goes on in verse 2 to say, and Gilead's wife bare him sons. So now he has a wife. And that wife bared him sons, or bare him sons, and his wife's sons grew up, and they thrust out Jephthah and said unto him, Thou shalt not inherit in our father's house, for thou art the son of a strange woman. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think Jephthah had anything to do with his daddy's immoral character. He didn't have anything to do with that horrible decision that his dad had to end up with a harlot and ultimately bring him into the world. And yet here he is paying for that. Jephthah grew up the black sheep of the family. He knew what it meant to be lonely. He knew what it meant to be unloved and unwanted. And I'm sure he could hear those words, the words of his father, the words of his stepmothers, the words of of, of his his brothers, half-brothers and half-sisters, mocking and making fun of him over and over again, telling him, you'll never amount to anything. You're stupid. You're nothing. I'm sure he could hear those words over and over and over again. But Jephthah would not allow his past to drown his promising future. Before it was over, he was used to deliver God's people and judge Israel for six years. Matter of fact, his name is recorded for us in the Word of God. Now, I don't know about you, but maybe you grew up experiencing some rejection in your life. Maybe you knew what it was to feel unloved and unwanted. Maybe people told you you were a mistake. But I'm telling you, it doesn't matter what your past is. God's not as concerned about that as he is your present and your future. God's concerned about what you're going to do for him today and how you're going to turn out tomorrow. I think about the Apostle Paul. In the book of Acts, chapter 26, verse 16 through 19, the Bible says, But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles, unto whom now I send thee to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them, which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, Paul says, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. I did exactly what you told me to do. Hold on. I don't know about you, but Paul had a past, didn't he? I mean, Paul was a persecutor of Christians. I'm sure that there were times in Paul's life that the tempter came along and said, Paul, now I know what God said he wants to do with you, but think about who you were and what you did. There's no way in the world God could use you, buster. There's no way you can put the past behind you. I mean, you were a murderer of Christians. You literally took daddies from mamas and their babies. You took mamas from their children and their their husbands. You tore and destroyed up home after home. You ripped up and destroyed lives. There's no way God can use you today. I don't know about you, but maybe your past is riddled with some regrets. 
Maybe every once in a while when you uh, think about serving the Lord, the devil comes along and says, eh. and you go, man, I know I regret that. I regret that. I regret that. Oh, man, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have gone there. I shouldn't have allowed that. I, I did that, and I did this, and you have regret after regret, and the devil uses that to get a foothold in your life and keep you from enjoying the present and enjoying the future that God has for you. I'm telling you today that biblically and scripturally today that God is not as concerned about your past as he is your present and your future. you got to get past it. Three measly verses in an entire book he spends on their past. Such were some of you. That's in the past. That's forgotten. That's over with. Live your life today and live it tomorrow for Christ. Think about Esther. The Bible tells us that Esther had no mother or father at this point in her life. She was being raised by her cousin Mordecai. Before it's over, however, Esther's queen, queen of the Mesopotamia, queen of the Medo-Persian Empire. And ultimately, she is used for such a time as this to save the Jewish race. And she will be remembered forever as her name is burned in the pages of the Word of God. Maybe you didn't have a mom or dad growing up. Maybe they abandoned you. Maybe they treated you as though you didn't exist. And your life has been filled with emptiness. You're looking for a dad to love you. You're looking for a mom to love you. You want someone to affirm you and and to tell you that you're somebody and you're important and you're valuable. But you think to yourself, either God took my parents away when I was young or they left me and, and to fend for myself. I don't know what it is, but my friend today, I want you to know your past should have, cannot have any power over you today. You need to put that in the past. You need to say, devil, it doesn't matter whether I had the proper upbringing like you're supposed to have. It doesn't matter if I had a daddy or a mama there. It doesn't matter because God is my father and mother now. God takes care of me. God meets my needs. And I'm not going to let the devil use something like that to, to completely and totally destroy me, to make me feel useless and helpless and hopeless. I can't imagine growing up without a daddy. I can't imagine growing up without a mom, whether it was in death or whether they just often left. But I'm telling you this, it doesn't have to make you less than what God wants you to be. God's not concerned with who you were, but with who you are and where you're going. And listen, if you're lost today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, you can't help but live with your past. And dwell in your presence. That's what you're going to do. But I want you to know you can have a promising future too. Oh, I know you got now, but then you have to deal with and live with all that past. But you can have a promising future. Do you realize that there is only a heaven and a hell where we spend eternity? It's not like we have options. There's only one or the other. And the only reason that a believer has a promising future is because they have a powerful father and they've been forgiven of their sin. They have a new lease on life, a fresh start, a new beginning, and you can have the same thing if you'll put your faith and trust in him. And then he can say to you, such were some of you.
The Bible says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Boy, you bear the weight of your sin. You bear the shame and the guilt of your sin, but you don't have to do that. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, he says. Again, so many are tormented by their past. And because of that, they load their present state. They're bound by sin, enslaved by vice. Let Christ make you free today. And you can be free indeed. If the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed, John 8, 36. But what of the believer today? We need to come to an altar and we need to give our past to God this morning. I, I don't know, maybe your past was last night. You need to give it to Him. Someone says, well, if you're supposed to be Christian, you're supposed to be so good, why do you still sin? Well, get on board and you'll find out. You'll find out. You know, unfortunately, we still got this old flesh hanging around. Keeps telling us that we need that sin, even though him living in us says you don't need it. We war with that flesh. And you know what? You'll war with it too. But I'm telling you, you'll then have the power at least to overcome it. Believers that fail and falter in sin are those who have let their guard down, who have not allowed Christ to live preeminent in their life, have permitted him to be set aside for just a moment to please the flesh. It's not God's fault that we sin. It's our fault. But as believers, we need to surrender all rights that we think we have to our past as well. We've got to give them back to God. We need to say this. We need to say, God, I give you my past and all the chains that hold me back. I surrender my past, my present and future to you today. See, God doesn't just want you today and tomorrow. He wants you to give him, give him your past too. You know what many of us do? We go around carrying our past on our backs. We go around bearing the burden of our past. We carry the shame, the guilt. Oh, we know. We know what God's telling us. But we don't obey that part of it. You need to give your past to God. And if you don't, you're going to hold on to it. And in some cases, we selfishly hold on to the past because we believe it gives us an excuse for the feelings that we have or the behavior that we, we perform. That it makes us, it justifies our feelings and it justifies our behavior. You don't know what happened to me. You don't know what I've been through. Oh, that gives you a right to sin then. See, we hold on to it sometimes, but we have to relinquish ownership of it. We have to be, we have to have been brought with, bought with a price, the Bible says. We've been bought with a price. God purchased our past as well as our future. Years ago, I bought a, a green Chevy Impala. It was a boat. I mean, it was huge. A huge car. First car I ever had. I mean, I went out there and I got excited. I saved some money up. I, th I had 500 bucks. I went out looking for the best car I could find. Somebody turned me on to this green Impala. Boy, I tell you what, I went out and looked at it, and the sale sign said, as is. As is. Big green Impala. It was a few years old. Let's put it this way. It had an 8-track player in it, and it still worked. 
Well, I bought that car. And you know, when I bought that car, I bought that car knowing I was buying the good and the bad. It was as is, right? You know, I bought poor gas mileage. Oh, it was horrible. I bought a, a bad muffler. I bought a bad, I bought a cracked windshield. But it was all mine. Oh boy, first car, wow. You want to know something? God bought your every sin, your every flaw, and your every failure. He bought every one of your weaknesses, your sorrows, your burdens, and your cares. You may feel as though God got ripped off, but he bought you nonetheless. He purchased you just as you were. See, God's not some old senile lady getting taken advantage of by a used car dealer. He is the personification of wisdom, of understanding, and of knowledge. You couldn't flamboozle God any more than you could beat him in an arm wrestling match. You couldn't do it. He bought you as is. Just the way you are. And you are all God's today. Therefore, you have no right to hold on to your past. None. You're not the same person and the past is not yours any longer. Who cares what you were? God doesn't care. God's concerned with now. He's concerned with your promising future. I wonder today. I wonder. Will you give your past to God today? Will you realize and recognize as 1 Corinthians teaches us that God's not concerned with that. He's concerned with our present. Our present faith And our promising future. Boy, what a promising future you have in Christ that I have in Christ. And if you're lost today, why don't you latch on to God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and enjoy a promising future also. He's the only way, the truth, and the life. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for your simplicity, your your word, and we just ask, Lord, that you'd help us to, Father, truly take this simple biblical truth and apply it to our lives, and may we not allow the devil to cause us to continue to go back and relive our failures and our faults and get a foothold, a stronghold in our life as a result. Lord, help us to just remember that what matters is now and the future. That's what you're most concerned with. Just three simple verses, such were some of you. But the rest of the book is dealing with who they were and what they were supposed to become and be. Father, help us, Lord, not to get burdened down by the past, but to turn it over to you, the person who bought us as is. We love you. We thank you. In Christ's name. Let's all stand to our